Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I have with me Brad Zapp. Brad is the managing partner of Kinetic Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm that leverages data and AI to invest in the highest potential founders, applying a hard science that they call foundernomics, which deploys people analytics to material impact investment decisions for the better. Brad, how are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. I'm really appreciative to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And we've connected through mutual friends and you're a you know, huge networker like I am. And so I'm excited to get you on the show and, and tell the story. And, and let's start there because you have a, an interesting background that I think will help inform the rest of the conversation. Could you give a bit of the, the intro? Yeah. So prior to being a venture capital manager, 
I was the co-founder and managing partner of a registered investment advisory practice. And, you know, so we dealt with the mass affluent, you know, asset allocation models and all that. But when I was in that business, I started in 2000. And so I cut my teeth in probably the worst or one of the worst 10-year runs in stock market history. So, so it's not like what the last 10 years have been for these financial advisors. So I became fascinated very, very quickly with alternative investments of all types. And I was just looking for anything. If you think of it, 2000, 2001, 2002, we had the dot-com bust. And then we get our sea legs underneath us. And then just after, after 4th of July in 07, we have the Great Recession and everything was just, you know, just falling apart. And so I've just really, really was fascinated uh, with alternative investments ever since then. The problem for the mass affluent is we simply didn't have access to much stuff. I mean, the concept of alternatives, the only one that you, you really had access to is real estate. And, but the super affluent pensions and endowments, they had access to a lot of different stuff. So I basically, I sold out of my business and I began exploring angel investing and, and venture capital. And it seemed to have sort of the most energy behind it. It was the most, it was like, wow, this, is, this was incredible. But what I couldn't figure out locally was, does anyone make money at this? Well, and let's, before we get there, can you give us geography lesson? When you say in town or here, what are we yeah. talking about? The middle of nowhere. So a Kentucky. And it's about the worst place that you could ever be to start a venture capital firm. If we were doing bourbon and horse racing, we're this is the absolute best place to be. But to to start a, a VC firm, there's just is no education, there's no prior experience. So this is just completely it's like as if an alien would drop from the moon. And so we're gonna get into the VC journey. Could you maybe expound a little bit upon the experience you had in the wealth management space and, and this disillusionment that occurred to you. And, and to, I would love to hear some of your commentary on what you think kind of the state of play is for a lot of these RIAs or, you know, smaller boutique wealth managers, what it was like then versus today when you talk about alternatives and how they approach their business. Yeah. So again, before the great recession, I think, you know, the concept was it was an oversimplification of financial markets. And it was kind of like, look, over a long period of time, you just need the bulk of your money in the stock market and you'll be fine. Because over long periods of time, it'll work itself out and you don't have to worry about the ebbs and flows. Problem is there's something called real life and human beings during your working years, your accumulation years, I could go on and on. Tell me exactly when do you have a long period of time? It doesn't matter if you're 22 years old and starting out in the workforce, you need a new car in the first two years because the clunker from college stinks. Or then you get married and you need a house. You have three kids and you need a bigger house and on and on and on. So just that the volatility of the stock market, even if it wasn't in the early 2000s, is not really conducive to get that 10% return that you really need sub-inflation taxes and fees in order to accumulate wealth. So couple that, you start doing the math, start doing overlay with real life. I was kind of, 
you know, really interested in how could I smooth out the ride? And, you know, if, if I magically could wave a wand and give everyone a 10% return every year, then that's what we should do. We should strive for that. And so the way to do that or attempt to do that is decoupling assets that have high return potential and no correlation to the stock market. But again, you know, back in those days and even today, and we can talk about this a little bit, for the mass affluent, and when I say mass affluent, that's pretty much the majority of the households that financial advisors manage. It's about 100 $106 trillion marketplace, and not all of them are accredited. So even if a financial advisor had the wherewithal to sell some sort of private placement, the bulk of their practice, you know, that doesn't fit. And financial advisors, you're asking them to do something that creates just tons of friction because it doesn't scale. So what would you say, you know, for that mass affluent household income, household net worth, what would you peg that at? I mean, I, let's use my my RIA that I had as a as a very you know typical. I think RIA we probably had you know married two kids, five hundred thousand dollar house, and probably three hundred thousand dollar in income, and seven hundred fifty thousand dollar in liquid net worth, and you know maybe just over a, you know a million in total net worth. Our business owners would have a much larger net, but you know, eighty to ninety percent of that net worth would be tied up into the business, which mm-hmm. then also poses problems too because they don't have the liquidity. You know, you really feel poor when you actually do see a good investment and you don't have a way to invest them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this problem, right? Access, and especially in before some of these technological advances, geographic location was a barrier depending on where you lived, right? So how did you think about attacking this problem once you left the wealth management space? So this has been a long, you know, journey that, you know, hopefully we're we're coming up to to our moment in sun, but I knew that it was an access problem for the mass affluent. And I knew how the super affluent were investing and there's tons of literature out there on the pensions and endowments and things like that. So I've always been on the same journey since I left the wealth management world that I wanted to create some sort of security that would give financial advisors the easy button. And I really mean button because if financial advisors can't touch a button to buy something, the lift is, is just so hard to, you know, t- to get them to do that. So I've, I've simultaneously, I've been, you know, figuring out the securities path. And then at the same time, we've been, you know, we started our own venture firm because we, I need to prove a track record because coming up with a security wrapper is one thing, but financial advisors also need to sell it to their customers. And sometimes the mass affluent are very simple. They just say, well, how, what's its performance? What's its historical performance? What's it going to be? So I kind of was, have been going down, you know, both, both paths. I do have a private fund. You know, we, we have been extremely active since 2019, despite the challenges of being in Kentucky, which we solved that problem in a, in a pretty unique way. But that's really been what we've been doing is let's just go ahead and cut our teeth in the private markets. Let's, let's get out there and get going. And along the way, surround myself with, you know, people that can help me think through, you know, what type, how can we come up with a registered product that would be available for the mass affluent? 
Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So what does it look like? (laughs) Tell me, give it to me. Well, for, for us, the product, it looks like it's called an interval fund. And what's, what's interesting is they, they've been around a while, but they've not been widely used. I believe if I was to guess, there's about 75 interval funds in registered with the SEC currently. There are two interval funds that are registered as venture capital interval funds, but the majority of them are real estate and fixed income. And those are nice invest real estate and fixed income. Those are nice investment strategies that um, lend itself to a to you know the interval fund. The scary part where the disconnect comes in from an interval fund and venture capital is is the liquidity component. So you have to be mindful and thoughtful how to do that. But there are substantial advantages uh, of the structure. Number one being if you register with the SEC, well, not everybody can have access to venture capital. So we can cut through all that conversation with the financial advisors. You know, you go in and they roll their eyes and they're like, man, I love your strategy, but, you know, three of my clients may qualify and that's no, no, no. When we walk in there, when we launch our fund, it's very simple. It's going to be all your clients can be in this fund. You're going to be able to push a button for daily purchases. You're not going to have to explain anything wonky because there's going to be a daily valuation that will be inside your portfolio. You can show the historical track record of venture capital, which is impeccable. And you can have an easy conversation when your client says, well, why didn't you put me in this before? Well, it's never been available before. And the client's going to say, well, thank you. I'm so glad you called today. Let's put 5% you know, in that. And that's how I hope it goes. And when we did the pre-call, we went pretty far down the rabbit hole in this founder economics, foundernomics, excuse me, concept. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah. So this is, this is my favorite topic. Uh, of course, it's like on one hand, it's pretty controversial. Some people think, you know, it can't be done. I obviously, I think it can be done. Or I wouldn't, wouldn't be doing it. But foundernomics in a nutshell is money ball for founders. And so when you think of early stage venture capital, you cannot apply any normal private equity metrics to the selection criteria of a, a venture company because there are no metrics. And so we're, we're literally talking companies at the earliest stages that maybe they've quit their job, maybe they haven't. And they've talked, you know, one person in to working on this product that they think can scale globally. And so they put together this, you know, beautiful pitch deck and this forward looking, you know, hockey stick, you know, pro forma, but nothing's ever, nothing's ever been done. And so it's just, you know, completely worthless. And then even if I was to take that out three or four years, does it really matter if a guy's making a million dollars a year at a company. Is that really, that's, that's the Mendoza that, oh, that company is going to be successful because even in Kentucky, we got a heck of a lot of companies that make a million dollars a year. We call that a job. And so what I was interested in is the activities that are required 
the behaviors, the ups and downs that you go through specific to a venture-backed startup that, you know, is a potentially globally scalable product or service are way different than most of the other entrepreneurial endeavors. And so I hypothesized that there are certain people that would do better and be better suited and gain more energy out of doing that. And some people would really struggle at that. And I was very shocked that nobody was tracking psychological measures of people or behavior measures of people. So that's what we did because it's the most gettable and obtainable type of data that you can get on an early stage company. So we created our own proprietary assessment and we built it from the ground up using, you know, roughly about 12 traits of, you know, human psychology that we believe one were measurable with mathematics and two were probably important on the spectrum somewhere of how well a founder would perform or not. And then we started tracking it. And so we we started with hypothesis and we said, okay, these type of founders are going to do better and these type of founders are going to do, do worse. And it's really been a fascinating explanation. Our hypothesis was not totally correct. And it's really hard with the naked eye to even, even after I've been doing foundernomics, and, you know, we call our assessment team print and our AI platform. It's a bot that, that talks to the founders called Wendell. Even after I've been doing this since 2019 and we've assessed close to 10,000 founders, I still would have a really difficult time with my naked eye filling out a sheet and giving that founder a score. It's super nuanced. So it's, so it's really difficult, but it does produce a lot of data. And the results are really compelling. All I can tell you is top performing founders are seven times better than the worst. And that's pretty significant. Is this akin to the concept that, especially in early stage companies, you very much are investing in in the entrepreneur and the team rather than the product? 100%. A friend of mine said this and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. We are good at, you know, investing in the product that builds the product. So the people themselves you know, are a product. And that's that's the most valuable resource of any startup. Otherwise, what are we, you know, what are we doing? You know, why are we spending so much time? You know, think about it. When a startup launches, they have a minimal viable product. So what's the diligence? Who I know who cares if it doesn't work? It's minimal viable, right? Or, you know, show me a startup that ever hit like the pro forma. So, but we spend so much time in diligence. And it just fascinated me. But people will say, you go out and survey venture capitalists and what matters? And I would say 100% of VCs somewhere in their top three will say, you know what? The team matters. You know, so I liken this to, you know, we just had Warren Buffett just had Buffett stock. I love Warren Buffett. I think he's funny. He's got a lot of famous quotes. And one of his quotes used to be, which he's retracted a little bit, but he said something to the effect of when, when people ask what types of businesses does he invest in, it was kind of like invest in a business that's so good that an idiot could run because one day they will. <laughs> yes. And now if we're talking Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett and, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. 
And so in my mind, there's probably some sort of sliding scale on the Buffett end is like people, the main guy maybe doesn't matter if the, the business is that good. But then doesn't it stand to reason that that's the only thing that matters at, at the earliest stages? And so that's sort of the way we think about it. And when you talk about these obtainable personality traits, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing, what, what are the traits and, and how do you access them within the screening of mechanism? Yeah, so I am not a PhD in organizational psychology, although we now have one on staff. And But I think the human, you know, we have some 35, 36 unique and distinct personality traits. And this has all been well written about from, you know, very famous Carl Jung and Marston, and they invented these things like the DISC profile and all that. So, you know, words like emotionality and temperament or your the way you think from an attention to detail or, you know, more of a macro global level or your desire to get energy to take charge versus being a part of a team or, I mean, the most obvious one that we all know is introversion, extroversion, but those those types of traits. And so we turn them into something we call factors and it's it's how they relate to each other that we turn every individual into a profile. So I'm, I'm a profile that we, that we call the disruptor and at face value that doesn't really mean, you know, anything, but in order to have some sort of brand and talk about it internally and externally, we give everybody a profile, but on each profile, there's, you know, a roughly eight, nine or 10 traits and a couple other uh, data points that we capture. And then on the back end, you can extrapolate all that out and we can record it. And so we're basically recording the performance of each profile. We're recording the performance of each trait. We're recording my favorites, the dynamic duo is if you have some variance in performance, you know, obviously that makes me nervous. And I scratch my head and I say, well, 71% of the accelerators are winning. What happened to the other 29%, right? Was it bad luck? Was it bad team? Was it lack of funding? And so the dynamic duo is we are starting to track a lot more team elements, which is really hard to do because you need a huge set of data. But yeah, that's what we're doing. So you've got this data set. You've started applying it. You've started making investments, Right. I mean, yes. you, you started putting together a track record. What are the most unanticipated outcomes based on maybe if you would do what you're doing? I mean, if you did this blind, right? And you start investing with some of these firms based on these personality traits and this unorthodox investment strategy. I'm sure you've got some good anecdotes or stories behind some of the, the results that you've had. Yeah. And I don't we don't, we haven't completely solved the why, but I'll give you a couple of cool ones. So we have 21 different profiles. And when we originally set out, we believed that five of them would have significant overperformance. Well, the one profile that I thought would be horrible was a profile we call the academic. Guess what? They're the fourth best performer so far. And my mind's like blown away. Like, no, that can't be. Academics cannot be good entrepreneurs. Well, it turns out they are, or at least they are so far. And they are completely different than our enterprising class, which was the class of profiles that, you know, display strong leadership and forward thinking. And, you know, they're not super technical. They're just go, go, go. But 
I don't know why this one little segment, this this group of academics have snuck in. Their performance is really substantial. And I'll give you another one, and I can give you a third if you want, but I'll give you the other one that kind of blew our minds. When you think of a spectrum of how strongly you display a certain trait, one of the traits that we were tracking is the leadership trait. And we had this hypothesis that at some point that would inverse. And if it was just too alpha, then maybe they wouldn't be the best founders because they would dig their heels in, they'd be inflexible, not coachable, you know, potentially toxic, you know, whatever. Well, turns out that was completely wrong. Like that's been a really strong and stable, you know, type of trait to look for. And also we have no correlation to that trait touching anything potentially toxic, which we're also, you know, we all know the stories and the Netflix shows around, you know, some of the toxic founders. And that is, that has nothing to do with, with the natural leadership trait. So academics and alphas, that's been super interesting for us. And what about profile of the founders and entrepreneurs that you're investing in? I mean, you know, it it is typically a, a white male business, right? But, but it seems like you've been able to broaden the lens out and have much more diverse founders and principals you're working with, right? And is that a product of this different strategy, you think? Yes. So we have, out of the 21 profiles, I can tell you that 19 of them are, you know, statistically insignificant split between male and females. So, you know, if the disruptor, there are just as many female disruptors as there are male disruptors. And so just using that for a moment, when you think about it, it's like, that's, that's pretty fascinating. So the way our system sees the world, a disruptor is a disruptor is a disruptor, and we get pretty excited to invest in a disruptor. But in the real world that is set up on a network effect and a pitch, you know, the female comes in, the female disruptor comes in, and it is just not coming across to the typical male investor in a manner that they can quite understand. And so instead of being excited, they're put off and they don't get the investment. Well, we don't even sort of think about people in any sort of human context necessarily anymore. We think of them as our little, in our little profiles. And there's only two of the profiles so far. And so we'll see what we want to do about this. But there's one that is predominantly male and there's one that is predominantly female. The other 19 are fine. And what I find fascinating about the predominant male profile, it's one called the strategist. It's an enterpriser. They got their act together. They present really well. And not only is it predominantly male, it's the most prevalent profile in our whole system. So it doesn't take too much pen to the paper to start to say, wait a minute, is is that like, you know, is there some discussion there on, you know, why are, why are all white male teams getting, you know, whatever the number is these days, 88 to 94% of the funding because strategists like strategists and there's a lot of strategists and most of them are men, you know, I think there's, I think there's certainly something to that, but our results speak for themselves. We toggle between, you know, 52 and 62% of our dollars and deals 
go to some team that is is has some makeup that's different than an all-white male team. So that could be tops in country, for all I know, for a firm and a fund. We don't have a direct diversity, equity, inclusion mandate. It's just happening organically, and we're pretty proud of that because it's a really neat byproduct. And it seems to dovetail with a lot of the articles and research I've been seeing in terms of DEI and ESG lenses over the long haul proved to be better investments just on a dollar basis, regardless of the other ancillary benefits that they provide to society. All I can tell you is I'll speak directly from us. It's like a gold mine. And it's like we've tapped into a secret, you know, well of founders that have a chip on their shoulder and no one will talk to them. And they all tell everybody about us because I had one, you know, one founder, it's a transgender woman. And when I told her that my system gave her the thumbs up, she's like, I could literally hug you. I cannot believe to have that external validation and just, you know, how, how awesome, you know, that was because just getting a meeting, you know, for, you know, we're not talking just marginalized founders because of, you know, some sort of race or identity. We're talking about overlooked geographies here. So, you know, we couldn't be further away from California. So the, having something that is accessible to anyone with an internet connection, this is amazing for us. And we are getting dollars to founders that otherwise may not, may not get money. And I'll tell you the truth. We've done about, I don't know, 75, 80 deals, but our system told us to do 450. And I would love to do, you know, every deal that our system said fund, again, at least half, if not the majority would be, you know, something other than an all white male team. We'd do them all if we just didn't have the financial constraints that we currently have from being, you know, a a first time emerging, you know, fund. And what about the geographic dispersion? I saw on your website that you 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 talk about investing across North America, but you exclude Boston and, and the Bay Area, which seems like obvious reasons. But what does that actually look like in the portfolio today? We have done deals in 32 states and three countries, Israel and Canada. We're starting a need to really buy a Canadian hockey jersey. I think we're up to six Canadian companies. So that's been really cool. And so we're getting deal flow now from almost every state. The ones we don't, I think they're called the Great Plains states. So I don't know. It's like North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska. We don't get anything from right right through there. We don't get anything from Alaska and Hawaii. But I mean, we do get stuff from California, but it's all Southern California, San Diego, you know, which is, you know, really far away from, from the Valley. But we've done 32 states. We get solid deal flow from probably 40-something states and killer deal flow from Canada. And so, you know, the vision moving forward, get build the track record, access more capital. But you have a bigger vision, I assume, just generally speaking, you know, based on this. Your website does a really good job, right? You got this traditional VC versus your own firm. Traditional VC, closed network, gut investing, long timelines and ghosting unconscious bias versus your approach. Are you hoping to change the system to some degree and and do good and do well? I mean, it's like, I feel like it would be an ego statement if it was important to me to, you know, change the system. 
I'm not the one that started the system the way it is, but any system that only works for night for, you know, such a small percentage of the population is getting 95% of all the money. That's, that's a terrible system. And so, you know, we, it's terrible for me too, because it's not like I would get to be, if I didn't do something different, if I tried to be a traditional VC, how in the world would I be successful in Kentucky? I couldn't. So I faced the same problems that these founders faced. And if you think of talent, you know, seriously, is like talent magically just born in Boston and the Valley? That's ridiculous. So, you know, they have a lot of people there and a lot of talented people, but I'm sure they got a lot of bozos too. But there's a lot of talented people in Kentucky. There's a lot of talented people in West Virginia. There's a lot of talented people in Tennessee and Illinois and all over the place. So, you know, I'd like to kill the pitch altogether. I think it's broken. I'd like to democratize capital. I'd like it to be not an exclusive asset class. So it's an asset class. The capital should be available to all founders, no matter where they're at or what they look like. And the asset class itself should be available for every investor, no matter who their financial advisor is. So let's bring the conversation full circle. How is what you are doing within the VC space dovetailing with what we're seeing play out in the financial services wealth management arena of a lot of firms going towards more holistic wealth management, democratization of access to alternatives, offering up a platform of private equity for folks, and, and we've seen this accelerate with COVID. Are you seeing those two worlds, your two worlds converge, your current gig and, and your, your prior one in some ways? Yeah, I think so. It's, you know, venture is a, I talked to plenty of, of PE managers. I talked to plenty of real, you know, other alternative managers. I mean, you know, we got to stick together. But venture capital, my opinion, is the one that has the largest education gap outside of California. They understand what venture is over there. They know what they're doing, or at least most of them do. And that, I think it's, that's going to be the hardest hill to climb is the education of why venture belongs in. And I mean, when I say this, everybody's portfolio, everybody, all the way from the most conservative investor to your most aggressive investor, maybe you have different amounts, but it, it belongs in everyone's. But also to answer your question, do I think that, you know, there's because of TAMPs and these roll-ups of RIAs and, you know, there's fee suppression on why are you charging 1% when I can just buy an index fund? I think everything's coming together that this is a, this is a great time. If I was still a financial advisor and I heard this podcast, not only would I be looking for BC, I'd be looking for everything. And so, yeah, I think part of it is this will be just a, a beautiful time to, for the public to invest in alternative investments. We won't be uh, alone in this journey and that's okay. And, but I think it's good for the mass affluent. Well, Brad, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been awesome to hear the journey, share the story. You've been incredibly helpful to me as we've looked to expand our network, especially in your neck of the woods. If people are interested in learning more about the firm, your investments, either as an entrepreneur or a potential LP, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm the most active. You can also go to our website and, and contact us there. But If it's me that you want to get in direct contact with, I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn. 
Yeah, awesome. And, and I can personally attest to the fact you should definitely reach out to Brad. He is a very generous, thoughtful person and has an incredible network. And so definitely encourage you to get in touch and learn more about what he's doing. Brad, thank you for the time. And I look forward to staying in touch and, and keeping updates and all the work that you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.